リンゴを食べると医者が青くなる Good afternoon. You are listening to Barclay Cooks Science Show. I'm Yuri Tanaka. It's a weekly look at science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Julia Vo. And I'm Franklin. Coming up on today's show soy, memory, and dung. In addition, Ms. Rory Jones will join us to discuss celiac disease. I'm Charles Lee. My name is Jason Michaud. Today we'll be trying to find out if urine is clean. In addition, we'll have the world famous question of the week coming right up here on the Berkeley Rock Science Show. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. I'm Yuri Tanaka. I'm Julia Bo. And I'm Jason Gishohi. It's another full house today. Yeah. Back for another week of exciting science. <laughs> science is always more fun with more people, I think. Misery loves <laughs> company. I, I actually hear if you do science by yourself, you go blind. Oh. But I'm not. I do it in my sleep. <laughs> All right. Mystery.、Uh, so, anything from, new from the world of science this week? How about soy? Is this soy like the greatest thing that's invented? Yes, soy is the greatest thing human beings ever had. So,、uh, don't the Japanese love to eat soy all the time? Yes, actually, I'm eating soy every day, and then most of Japanese eat soy every day. <laughs> so, what is it good for? It's good for everything. It changes your life. <laughs> yeah, also, we have natto, which is made by soybean. And then it's.、So、that's fermented soy. Yes,、right? fermented soy. It's actually really strong smell, but it's so great. You can live over a hundred years. Over a hundred years? Yes. Actually, I've had it, I'm not a big fan of it, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Vietnamese people have something like that. <laughs> Kind of、uh, old wisdom. It happened so long time ago, about 300 years ago, and then it actually one person f o r g e t eat soybean,、uh-huh. and then it g e t fermented. But as it turned out, it's good. <laughs> it's nice for parents. <laughs> it smells so bad, but as you get used to, it's so delicious. See, I leave stuff in my refrigerator and it kind of ferments, but it doesn't taste very good. It also like, gives me a stomach problem, though. <laughs> That's bad. I'm just wondering how did that first person decide to eat something he'd spat out? <laughs> it's a challenge <laughs> and courage I... and alcohol.、Uh, maybe. <laughs> Actually, I'd heard that that was one of the theories. For how the fermentation of alcohol was also discovered. They chewed some wheat and spit it out and then drank that again, and it had, they felt a little better afterwards. Yeah, it's the same theory. So I've discovered there's another use for soy、uh, sunscreen. Sunscreen? For what?、Uh, you can use soy to produce sunscreen. Right now, a lot of the sunscreen on market, they use inorganic stuff like zinc oxide, which may or may not be good for you. But the USD's Agricultural Research Service now has licensed this thing called 
dry soy to produce sunscreen. And basically, the, uh, the main ingredients, ferulic acid and antioxidants that's found in other uh, grains, but apparently it's also in soy. And by using some lipase enzymes, they can prevent it from dissolving in water. So you got this nice antioxidant that's in your uh, soy oil. Oh, okay. And if you get hungry, you can just lick it off your skin. <laughs> oh. It's right. like putting lunch on your uh, face, I guess. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> face run. <laughs> so do they have it where you can uh, control the amount of tan you get from each of the uh, soy? Suppose you can always change the concentration. but right. I wonder if there's special SPF-rated soy is my question. <laughs> I gotta wonder, but the, uh, the active ingredients against the UV light is the oxybenzone, the oxybenzone, and a couple others. Oh, and the other great thing is that it's swim and it's sweat-proof. Okay, so if you want to know more about that? Where can they look? Well, I guess they could go to the USDA's website, and there's also a very nice summary in the uh, chemical and engineering news. So have you ever heard about San Francisco's new great idea? Apparently the city is proposing to build a facility to collect pet waste and use that matter to generate uh, electricity by burning it off. Uh, but apparently it is used in most countries are where I come from. In Kenya, we use cow dung, dig a hole, and it burns itself, and it removes a lot of energy, which is used for, like, cooking, because, like, not everybody has the money to pay the Kenya Power and Lighting Company, oh. and that way, the people reduce gas emissions, even though it is a little bit dangerous, that is, if you don't know how to use it, because it's very easy for it to, like, explode because of the biothin. So the dung can explode? You know, it Dangerous. Has, it has that because of the energy stuff on it. It has to have like a tank where there's a pipe that goes from there to where you want. It's like a gas pipe. So if it's not well closed and gas is able to leak out, it becomes a little bit dangerous because the next thing is going to happen if you come try to light fire, it's going to just explode. But it's one of the most cheapest ways to producing energy. Especially, I guess, in areas where you can't get energy very readily, right? Yeah, and then it's the most easily available product because some traditions or some people use it for making floors of their houses, so it's free, you know? I'm, I'm going to recharge my iPod from now on from my toilet. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess San Francisco is not in the vanguard then, as far as this is concerned, it looks like. I guess maybe for the U.S. they are in the vanguard, but <laughs> the rest, I guess we're following the rest of the world. Here. Oh, well, it's rest of the world one, U.S. zero. <laughs> So if people want to know more about either, I guess, the Kenya stuff or the San Francisco proposal. The San Francisco Department of the Environment has some stuff on the web about that. Oh, cool. All right, so now it's time to test all of your memories. Whoa. I don't remember. <laughs> what were we talking about, by the way? I don't remember. I don't remember either. But if you want to help your memory, it's some researchers say you can do so by attaching meaning to what you're trying to remember. So you either love it or hate it, right? It has to have some kind of salience or some kind of importance for you to actually have a better recollection of the event. And actually, it's almost filed under the obvious category here, but they've apparently tested a number of patients, giving them random strings of letters. And this was research that was carried out by Loon Oten of the University College London in the UK. And what he did is he has a number of patients, gives them stuff to memorize in a scanner, which can look at the brain, called an fMRI. And he either tells them this is going to be uh, very important or just because you need to memorize it. And when they're forced to actually attach some kind of meaning to this, then they actually have a better recall of the event. And they've been able to localize this to the specific part of the brain in the frontal cortex. 
and that allows them to suggest that this area of the brain is very important in recalling an event only if it becomes emotionally important. Okay, so what kind of emotions are the most relevant here? <laughs> Fear is a very strong motivator. So if anyone's interested in this, it's actually recent work and it's been carried out in the recent edition of Nature Neuroscience. So does anyone here have acne? Uh, well, but not on my face. <laughs> <laughs> when you least expect it. Sometimes, especially in spring. I guess you may have wondered what causes these acnes, and a number of theories suggest that a high dairy diet could contribute, especially for a teenage acne. But recently, a dermatologist, Dr. Arbusman, has a different hypothesis. Hmm. He believes it's because of having a high iodine diet. I dairy iodine. Iodine. There seems to be a, a correlation with dairy, especially in the U.S. A lot of the dairy we have is fortified with iodine. That's because of the animal feed and whatever chemicals they use in the production of the milk. And why, why does he think iodine is a big deal? Because the previous studies suggest that it's because of hormones and uh, bioactive molecules in the milk, but he thinks it's actually related to iodine. And uh, although he doesn't have concrete proof, he thinks this reasonable <laughs> hypothesis fact is deemed as utterly fascinating. <laughs> Uh, by whom? Himself? <laughs> uh, I hope not, but uh, this article here in the recent uh, Chemical Engineering News <laughs> has it quoted as that. So how are you able to reduce the iodine in somebody's body rather than, you know, stopping taking milk, you know? If that's what he advises, uh, cut down on the milk. <laughs> so having to choose between osteoporosis and acne is utterly fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> that's a tough one. <laughs> so is there another way that we can prevent acne? probably drink organic milk with really? animals that eat natural foods rather than chemicals. Uh, in Japan, there's a scientific research about acne, and the tomato prevent acne. Oh. So lycopene action, huh? Ah, yes, lycopene. Lycopene? Yes. Well, I guess you just, what, rub the tomatoes on your face? <laughs> Is that how it works? <laughs> no, 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 no. Eating oh, hot tomato. Yeah. Oh, hot tomatoes. Yeah, oh. cooked tomato. Oh, right. So if it's raw, it doesn't work. But so if it gets hot... So it's like it's the fun. tomato vapors work. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Maybe like tomato aromatherapy, right? <laughs> Someone's opening a new spa soon. <laughs> <laughs> Look for them in Japan, I guess, at some point. <laughs> Important. Yes. All right, and if anyone wants to find out more, it's in the February 2006 issue of the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to the Berkeley Rock Science Show. Well, coming up next, Ms. Rory Jones will join us to discuss celiac disease. So stay tuned. to the Berkeley Rock Science Show. Well, across America and around the world, a mysterious disease has left many patients searching for answers. 
Many spend years or even decades looking for a proper diagnosis, suffering from gastrointestinal complaints, fatigue, and joint pains, to name just a few symptoms, only to finally learn they have celiac disease, an autoimmune disorder that can lead to serious secondary conditions. Well, joining us today to discuss this mysterious disease is Ms. Rory Jones. Ms. Jones has co-authored a new book on celiac disease with Dr. Peter H.R. Green from Columbia University entitled Celiac Disease, A Hidden Epidemic. And uh, Ms. Jones, we want to thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks. Thank you for having me. It's, it's certainly our pleasure, and this is, uh, I think, perhaps a disease that many people aren't familiar with. What is celiac disease? Celiac disease, as you started to explain quite well, is a hereditary autoimmune condition where the lining of the small intestine is damaged to the point where it can't properly absorb any of the food you're eating. And when you're not absorbing your food, nothing good happens. You're not getting essential vitamins, minerals, and without nutrition, the entire body begins to suffer. And some of the secondary conditions as you, which you did describe include also bone loss and osteoporosis, anemia, malignancies, infertilities. It's connected with diabetes. There's a skin condition, a tremendously itchy skin condition called dermatitis or petiformis or mm. DH. Mm. And it's why celiac disease was called the great masquerader mm. because you go to the doctor and you're diagnosed with one of these secondary conditions. So do sufferers from celiac disease, they only show a few of these symptoms, not all of them? It depends. Some people, some people get very, very sick, and mm -hmm. they have the GI complaints that mm -hmm. you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And these are the people that tend to get diagnosed quickly. Other people have these osteoporosis, which is almost a silent disease, or anemia, or thyroid disease, or mm -hmm. these neuropathies. And it takes sometimes 9 to 10 years in the United States for someone to get diagnosed properly. So why is it that it has such a wide range of effects, just the fact that you're losing all these nutrients from not being able to absorb your foods? That's basically it. Even though celiac disease attacks the small intestine, it's really a multi-system disorder mm. that your entire body suffers from. And it's also an autoimmune disease, and when you have one autoimmune disease, they tend to travel in pairs. You tend to have another one. People with celiac disease really, with some of these conditions, have a medicine cabinet that begins to look like a pharmacy. <laughs> Nobody knows why some people get terribly sick with one or two things, and some people have this whole list of symptoms. And really, the culprit in all of this is something called gluten, which is the protein found in wheat, rye, and barley. And so the very food, the very bread, the pastas, the cereals, the, the things that most of us eat every day, is treated by the body like poison. And it sets off a chain of reactions that in turn destroy the lining of the small intestine. I see. So it triggers the immune response to actually start attacking the gluten and attacking the small intestine. Is exactly. Oh, wow. So, I mean, why is this, besides its multi-symptom effect, why has it gone so undetected for so long in the population? Well, I think that in the United States, it was for many, many years considered a childhood disease. So the pediatricians were taught that if you see children who fail to thrive, who are losing weight, who have diarrhea or throwing up, they would immediately look for something like celiac disease. They also believed that you outgrew it hmm. when you got older, so that as an adult, in many medical schools, they didn't teach that adults come in with this type of reaction. And Dr. Green, along with several other experts in the United States, he has really championed changing the medical schools so that doctors are taught to recognize this. And it's a process. Uh, it's not going to happen overnight, but we are hoping with the book and the work that's being done by a lot of the, the support groups and, and other people, there have been a lot of articles written about it, that more and more the medical community as well as people will begin to understand what some of these symptoms may mean. Mm. 
Uh, you mentioned also it was a hereditary disease. People in your family then have it. Uh, you might absolutely. If one member of a family has it, there is a much greater chance that another one does. If one sibling has it, the rest of the siblings should be tested. As a matter of fact, if somebody is diagnosed with celiac disease, it is generally good medical practice to test the entire family. Mm. Uh, so how many people is it estimated actually have celiac disease? The scientific knowledge on it right now is that nearly one in every 100 people or 1% of the population have celiac disease. Wow. It's actually more common than hereditary high cholesterol. And yet 97% of these people are undiagnosed. So, well, that's incredible, actually. Is, are, are they developing better assays then to actually find the disease? Yes, there are very specific blood tests mm -hmm. that are the, the first indication. And if the, the blood tests are high for celiac, there's a specific celiac panel. The patient should have an endoscopy and biopsy the small intestine, and that is the definitive gold standard for the diagnosis of celiac disease. And if you have the skin manifestation, the DH, you can have a skin biopsy. Um, so if, if people are diagnosed with it, how do they actually treat it, or how can you live with the disease? The treatment is very simple. You remove gluten from your diet. <laughs> and I, I, I say that to people, and they say that's not simple. Hmm. It, there's a learning curve. It's not the easiest thing initially for some people. But there are gluten-free breads, pastas, pizza. There's even gluten-free beer. Hmm. And as more and more people begin to know about this, there are more and more vendors coming on with more and more gluten-free food you have to learn a, a certain amount of tools about eating out and how to deal with restaurants and your, your friends and your people who invite you to their home. Mm. But once you learn this and you know what questions to ask and what to do, you can eat a fair amount of almost most foods and can lead a very normal life. Hmm. Well, that's incredible because gluten being so prevalent, I get a lot of uh, our foods. <laughs> <laughs> how did you actually become interested in this disease? Well, I have it. That's always a good start. Right. <laughs> I actually have uh, the skin manifestation, and I went itching. It's, a, it's a, a form of itching that you, you know, you don't die of itching, but you don't sleep either. I had it for almost seven years before oh. it was properly diagnosed. And I just happened to be lucky because I went from one dermatologist to another, and I have osteoporosis mm. and had it probably from the time I was in my 30s. And one doctor finally said, that's not normal, sent my bloods off to a study that Peter Green was doing at Columbia. Mm. All the blood work came back very high and went in for my endoscopy. And Dr. Green saw me scratching and itching. And he said, has anybody ever biopsied those little lesions that you've got? And I said, no. He said, do you mind if I do? I said, no. And I got a definitive diagnosis that changed my life. Yeah, and so finally I said, look, it's time that somebody, I, I do a lot of scientific writing and I've written a number of other books on other conditions. I said, it's time that somebody wrote the definitive book from a medical point of view mm. about celiac disease because there are some wonderful resources out there about baking and different kinds of diet books and living with celiac disease, but this is really the first book that looks at, at the underlying causes, all the manifestations, mm. and really what to do once you've been diagnosed. Indeed. Well, we are running slightly out of time, but for those who like, perhaps recently diagnosed with celiac disease, what sort of resources can they go to to look um, for more information about this? There are websites that most of the, the major medical centers that deal with celiac disease, Columbia is a good place to start. And there are a lot of other resources listed right on the Columbia website. But if you go to the New York Presbyterian Columbia, it's the Celiac Disease Center at Columbia, their website will push you in the right direction. And you can get some very, very good, basic, solid advice. Uh, Ms. Jones, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grox and discussing this fascinating issue. Well, thank you very much. And you were just listening to Ms. Rory Jones discussing celiac disease. This is the Berkeley Grox Science Show. 
Well, coming up next, you can find out, is urine sterile? So stay tuned. For the answer to last week's question of the week. Jason Wishohi. Have a good afternoon and stay tuned for more music. 